It's time for Get the Lack Scoop, a podcast bringing you all the people and stuff you should know in the game of lacrosse. We take lack seriously, but ourselves, not so much. Join host Big Dog and Jay Bird and the biggest names in the game. Brought to you by Jay McMahon Lacrosse. Ron Doglish, the Big Dog, was a collegiate football and lacrosse player at Brown. He was also an assistant lacrosse coach and the executive director of the Sports Foundation. And Jay McMahon, the Jaybird, a three-time All-American midfielder at Brown. He was a captain of the U.S. Junior National Team and is the founder of JML. And joining us in the studio, Steve Grisalti, whose collegiate lacrosse career statistics equals one goal against Dartmouth. This podcast is brought to you by Jay McMahon Lacrosse. Now, that's a mouthful, so let's go with JML Lacrosse. Skills. Uh, Ron, JML has lacrosse in there. So just JML. Friends, get used to Jay interrupting me all the time. It's <laughs> maddening. Fine, Jay. It's JML, skills, mindset, and lax IQ training, helping the next generation of cross players get to the next level. Our next guest was one of the first members inducted into the high school lacrosse coaches hall of fame back in 2022. It's also known as the National Intercollegiate Lacrosse Coaches Association Hall of Fame. For 45 years, he was a teacher, coach, and administrator at St. Anne's Belfield School in Charlottesville, Virginia. He played his high school lacrosse at St. Paul School in Baltimore, graduating in 1968. He attended the University of Virginia and played and lettered in lacrosse during all of his four years from 1969 to 1972. His first college coach was Buddy Beardmore, followed by Glenn Thiel. At Virginia, he was a member of two national championship teams in 1970 and 1972. He began teaching and coaching at St. Anne's Belfield, also known as STAB, in 1973 as a history teacher and as the boys' JV lacrosse coach. In 1979, he was named as the boys' varsity lacrosse head coach, where he remained until 2009. In 1980, he became the school's athletic director, a position he held until 2012. Over those years, as the varsity boys lacrosse coach, he amassed a record of 407 wins to 173 losses and won seven state championships. From 1980 to 2009, as the athletic director, he increased Stab's athletic offerings from 10 teams to over 50. While attending the national coaches' conventions, he became involved in the National Interscholastic Lacrosse Association, also known as the NILA. With the support and encouragement of his fellow coaches, he served as vice president and president of that organization. The game of lacrosse has given this guest many great opportunities and rewards. He was a member of the original committee that established the first North-South high school game, and in 1983 was the head coach of the South team. In 1988, he was on the staff of the first USA under-19 team that won the world championship in Australia. And, Doug, I won't mention it, but I was on that team. I mean, Doug, this guy, <laughs> every single episode, somehow, he, he works his way back in? to the fact that he it's, was on the U19 team. Well, now, so this time, it's we'll, we'll say that it's okay, but every <laughs> single episode. And we'll get into later... Doug, hopefully some of Jay's finer moments on that it, team. It comes up. I would very appreciate whatever you could offer. Well, I picked him. I mean, he was like the top of my mini group. So just so you know. Oh, oh nice. I like this it. Is I not like helpful, it, Ron. This not is not what like I'm it. looking for. Exactly. <laughs> In 1985, he was inducted into the Charlottesville chapter of the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame for his community efforts to grow the game in Central Virginia. 
1997, he received the Gerald J. Carroll Coaches Award given annually by USA Lacrosse to an exemplary coach in the nation. In 2008 and 2009, he was honored by being named Virginia Independent School Coach of the Year. Throughout his coaching tenure, the Stab Lacrosse program has produced numerous high school All-Americans and collegiate All-Americans. In 2022, State Delegate Sally Hudson of Virginia was in attendance to award our guest a commending resolution. This document was passed by the Virginia General Assembly. According to Delegate Hudson, these are reserved for extraordinary Virginians who have made extraordinary impacts on individuals and their communities. And on top of all that, our guest currently does the color commentating for the UVA men's lacrosse team's local broadcast. And as you might imagine, he does a heck of a job with that as well. Please welcome the one, the only, Doug Tearing. No, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I'm not sure I'm, wor I'm worthy of all that, but, uh, you know, like I said, I, I reading the factual great, list there. It's, you know, it's been a great lacrosse life. Let's put it that way. That's well, awesome. Coach Tearing, it's great to, uh, great to meet you and great to have you with us. And as you speak about that great lacrosse life that you've had, we always like to start with our guests from the beginning, as they say. So can you talk about uh, your early days in Baltimore and getting introduced to the game of lacrosse? Who first introduced you to the game? And then talk about your career uh, playing at St. Paul's down in Baltimore. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, St. Paul's is one of the most traditionally successful programs in the history of high school lacrosse. It goes way back to the you know, 30s and 40s. And I started as a first grader, and they handed me, told me to go to Backrack Raisin in third grade and go get a wood stick which was at that point longer than I was. And so I think at St. Paul, you know, part of the tuition was maybe a book and a prostate. And that's the way, you know, that was the tradition of St. Paul's school. You know, blue and gold. And so, you know, it was just that the typical, even back in the 60s, you know, what every you know, young lacrosse player goes through, you know, you, you, you know, learn how to catch and throw and pick it up, which is always a challenge when you first get the stick. You play middle school, then you play JV. And you play varsity, and, and I was fortunate to play on some very good teams at St. Paul's with some very, very good players who, you know, went on to play college. And so, you know, I must say my Virginia connection was very easy. My father was a Virginia graduate. My brother went to Virginia. So I think if I had gone anyplace else, I probably would have had to find a rental. So <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of negotiation in my college choices back then. But, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me was landing at Virginia and then being able to stay in Charlottesville, you know, the rest of my life. Is there That's a particular great. person, Doug, early in your lacrosse days and that really influenced you, you know, helped to develop your passion for the game? Well, you know, at St. Paul's, we had great lacrosse coaches all the way through because that was a, a big part of what made the program successful is the progression from middle school playing a competitive schedule right up to the varsity. I had actually a really good middle school coach named Bruce McPherson, who was not by trade a lacrosse person, as he said, but he was an inspiring man. He knew how to motivate. He knew how to get the best out of you. And again, when you played at St. Paul's, they played with some great coaches. George Mitchell was my coach my senior year, of course, was in the Hall of Fame, played at Hopkins on some of the greatest Hopkins teams in the history of Hopkins lacrosse. So, you know, whenever you were playing at St. Paul's, you had a great coach. That's great. That's awesome. Now, the recruiting process is probably mighty different these days than it was back then. But I know you said you had that family history at UVA, but what, what was recruiting like back when you were looking well, at school? I'm not sure I was ever recruited because they didn't have to be. But what was interesting about our class, Jay, is it was a pretty much a Baltimore-based class, but also some guys from Long Island. It was, 
there were actually nine people in our first year class. And uh-huh. I would say, talk about coaches, you know, I had a great relationship with Glenn Thiel and actually helped him coach when I graduated. But playing for Buddy Beardmore for one year is one of the great experiences I've ever had playing lacrosse. And this was Buddy Beardmore's only second year as a head coach. Of course, uh-huh. we all know he went to Maryland to coach some of the greatest cross players in the history of our game, Frank Urso, Doug Shriver. The list is endless of those great Maryland teams in Seve. But, you know, I was a, a freshman along with a lot of other freshmen coming from good high school programs, but suddenly being thrust into Division One lacrosse. And what's interesting is we were the first group of first-yearmen that were allowed to play varsity lacrosse as freshmen. Because back then, everything was freshman football, freshman basketball. Uh-huh. Right. But, you know, the NCAA allowed maybe for that first year. So we were really the first class historically as freshmen to play on a Division One team and not have to go play one year of freshman lacrosse. And so we were very fortunate to get that year. And we had really great class, too. The people in my class are now the Hall of Fame, Jay Connery, Pete Eldridge. But we started like six of the freshmen of that class started in 1969. Right. Wow. Well, that's a great – you're leading me right into the, the next question, sure. Doug, because, uh, you know, Jay and I were doing our research – Seems like you had a hell of a run with that group from 70 through 72. And if we're not mistaken, 70, you were named national champs, but that was before there was actually a tournament. And so you guys were on that cusp when the the national championship tournament started. And I think in 71, you had an undefeated regular season, then lost to Navy in the playoffs. And then in 72, you got a little revenge and beat a great Hopkins team to win the outright title. So talk about that progression as you just said of starting six freshmen and then having that group have that kind of success at the national level over the next three years you know what's interesting about those years is that it was transitional not only for you know first year guys or freshmen to be playing varsity lacrosse and of course after that everybody had freshmen for example frank urso was a four-team all-american that rule around frank urso to play four years in maryland along with those other great players in this class right. what was interesting is we were a transitional team not only in terms of that we were also a transitional team between wood sticks and plastic sticks. Mm, our uh, our first year, our first two years, we played with wood sticks. Wow. And when we graduated in 1972, we were the first team to win a national championship playing with plastic sticks. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Ducat and Jim Ullman, who were, you know, both on that team, worked at with, you know, SDX. I'm sure we all remember that name. Um, mm-hmm. helped develop the plastic stick, brought them down to us for practice. They were wobbly. They were heavy. <laughs> they were hard to catch and throw with. Um, but, you know, college teams had never played against a team that had used plastic sticks before. So that 72 championship game, all but maybe two of our players were playing with plastic, and a number of the Hopkins guys were still playing with wood. Wow. wow. Well, I loved I loved hearing you. And, you know, there's such interesting connections with the cross players across generations. I played just a couple of years after you in Maryland. We talked about my connection to St. Mary's and some great games against St. Paul's when Jim Moorhead was my coach. But I have vivid memories of going to back rack raising. I wasn't buying a wood stick back then, <laughs> Doug. But, you know, I think generations of Maryland players, right, that's where you went to get your equipment. And so it's funny those things that stick in your mind. You, you, that, that came flooding back to me when you mentioned back rack raising. Well, what's interesting, of course, now you can just take a stick off the rack you yeah. went to back rack raising. You were in there for hours. Picking oh, stick yeah. I mean, picking the wooden so stick. You had to pick a wooden stick. It was the weight. It was the size of the handle. Of course, one side was cat gut and one side was wood. And 
So it was kind of a religious experience to go down to Backrack Raisin and the people who worked down there, Wilson Future and some old people who ran the store. It was quite experienced. It's kind of like, I, you know, I hate to make the analogy, but it's pretty like Harry Potter picking out a wand. You had to get the perfect stick. I and then it. you broke, you went into withdrawal. Right. So uh, that was what you did growing up playing lacrosse in Baltimore, was go to Backrack Raisin and pick out the ultimate wood stick. That's great. Yeah. And then just to follow up on that, as you're in school, the tournament starts. Was that in part because you had that three-team national championship in 1970? Wasn't there three you well, along with two other teams, or was it in was the works for a while? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting about that. It was you know we it was you know the classic cases we beat Hopkins, Navy beat us, Hopkins beat Navy, and mm-hmm. um, and of course back then the all across was being uh, run by the USILA, which is the inter you know US Intercollegiate Lacrosse Association. So at the North South game that year, they announced the three way tie, and we didn't know we won the national championship. We were gone. School was over. We were out. We, <laughs> oh, yeah. hey, oh, by the way, you're a national champ. Oh, great. You know. Uh, <laughs> but what's interesting is a great article that you know relates jumping ahead, way ahead. Kevin Cargan, his dad was the AD when I was at, at Virginia. Gene Cargan, all right, yeah, just yeah. athletic administrators of all time, and he is the one at the North South game after that, you know, three way tie proposed that there be a national championship competition. Wow. So Gene Cargan. The, at the North-South game, proposed that there be a regular championship tournament as opposed to just a selection committee. And in 1971, when Cornell beat Maryland, that was the first national championship game. And that really was Kevin Stack who initiated that. Wow. That's a nice piece of history right there. It is. Awesome. And that Cornell-Maryland game is still sort of well-known by anybody in the game. That first championship game, those were amazing games. Right. Well, yeah, we were supposed so. to be in it. We were undefeated, number one seed, and got beat by Navy, you know, and they deserved to win. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, we went from being a tri-champion to the number one seed. And then when we went to the 72 game, we actually were like the sixth seed holding on. You know, we had to beat WL, wow. you know, in our last game. And we were actually losing and came back. And then we were not a higher seed, you know, going into that tournament. We beat Army in the first round. And then the second round, they sent us off to Cortland, and we played Cortland State in the semifinals. Oh, yeah. And then came back and played Hopkins in the finals, and the coach at Cortland that year was Jack Emma. That's right, because we had Bill Tierney, Coach Bill Tierney, on the podcast. He was, uh, yeah, he, he was, was a uh, He was on that team, well, right? I don't know what story Bill tells, but, you know, I think he, you know, I think he might have been like a second or third spring attackman, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, right. I, I think uh, he did admit that. He I did think admit, he did admit that. He said he wasn't a very that good That was actually player. a great Cortland team. Paul Wareham, who was also an outstanding college coach, but they were a great team, and it was quite an experience to go to Geneva, New York, and play in front of five or 6,000. Oh, people. yeah. That's uh, right. He told that story that you guys came up, went up there. Right. It was a great atmosphere. <laughs> like I said, we obviously excited about winning the National Championship game, but that was a really – as a group, we talked more about that game than we do the Championship game. Uh, we we transition to uh, JML and let's do that. We'll get into a little bit of the mindset. We'll do a mindset minute here. Brian Kane, Dr. Rob Gilbert, and many other sports performance experts speak of what's called the championship mindset. They say in order to see it, you must be it. Notice the statement is in the present tense, in the here and now. What do they mean when they say you will see it when you be it? The experts like to point out that this flies in the face of what most of us are taught and that this, I will believe it when I see it, is what we're normally taught. Well, apparently, 
Not with championships, we won't. What they really are talking about is an ancient concept called the Law of Resonance. The Law of Resonance dictates that when our desires, or what we want, aligns with what we believe is possible, as well as aligning with what we expect to happen, then all of our being is resonating or is in resonance with what it is that we are after. We are it. We are champions before, during, and after the final game is played. We've all noticed so many times the top seed does not win the championship. Gilbert and others point out it is not the best team that wins, but the team that plays their best when it matters the most that takes the crown. Now, Brian Kane likes to say that imagination plays a key part in the law of resonance, and he points to the famous Albert Einstein quote that says, imagination is more important than knowledge. In our example, that desire to win the national championship needs to become something that all the players can and do imagine becoming a reality. They can sit with it, with that feeling of its accomplishment in their imagination, as if it were an established fact, and feel comfortable with it, accept it, and then come game day, receive its manifestation. As Coach Taring said, in 1971 when he was a player, his team at the University of Virginia was ranked number one. They were undefeated in the regular season, and yet they were upended in the playoffs. And we could sense what a sour taste that left in his mouth and the mouths of his teammates. He conceded that they did lose in 1971 to Navy, but his tone emitted the sense that it just wasn't right. And in 1972, his class, who had been playing together for four years, felt like it was their year in 1972. Despite having losses during the regular season and being ranked sixth in the tournament, they would not be denied. They resonated with that championship, and that resonance allowed them to defeat the number one seeded Johns Hopkins University Blue Jays, despite the fact that UVA had less talent. To summarize, the law of resonance dictates that when we have a goal or a desire, and we can imagine just how it would feel deep down inside to have accomplished that goal and feel confident and comfortable with its achievement, then our desire and our belief about that desire and our expectation of achieving that desire are all in alignment. Then we are resonating with our goal and we have a much higher chance of making that dream a reality. That wraps up our Mindset Minute. We will get back to our interview in progress. Right. Oh, man, that's great. Awesome. Now, shifting gears a little bit, taking you back to after graduation, would like to have you describe kind of the state of high school across there in Virginia. I'm sure you were quite the pioneer in Central Virginia, coaching that JV team at Stead. Well, there really wasn't much of a state of across yeah. in Virginia. To be honest <laughs> yeah. With you. yeah, there were a few independent schools that played, or private schools. St. Chris had a school had a team, and Episcopal High School had a team. Woodbury had a team. There was no public school across at all. Wow. Um, certainly in, in, in the entire state. In fact, um, you know, the first club teams were in Charlottesville. Charlottesville High School had a club team, and then eventually they became a high school team. But in the late, early, middle 70s, you know, we were the only, you know, school playing lacrosse as part of a school program. And right. uh, I started as a JV coach, and then Tommy Duquette and actually and I coached together. Tommy was the head coach from 74 to 78, and then I – took over in 79 as a varsity coach. And of course, you know, Tommy then left and had, you know, a phenomenal career at Norfolk Academy. Uh-huh. That's great. Now, what about the rest of the country? You guys were just talking about how Baltimore and Annapolis were going and Long Island probably was doing pretty well at that point. 
I would imagine Central New York with Syracuse is that's probably when they really started picking up. Do, do you know what the national scene was like back then? Well, it was still Long Island heavily, you know, based in terms of Baltimore, Long Island dominated, you know, as far as the college level players. Um, because when you look back at who we played, I mean, Duke and North Carolina, when we were playing, were virtually club teams. Um, there was, you know, Notre Dame didn't, you know, it was a club team. I mean, you look at the landscape of college across in the late 60s and early 70s, the best four programs, we kind of poked our head up into the, into what I would call the, you know, the top echelon, so to speak. But it was Army, Navy, Maryland, Hopkins. That was, mm-hmm. you know, that was really the center of lacrosse. You know, in the sixties and seventies, you look at all the great teams of the of that era. It came from those four schools. Of course, back then the military schools were super good. Um, right. Army, Navy, and of course Hopkins with some of the great coaches they had in Maryland. So, but those were the four teams. We kind of, you know, maybe if you've you know ever read Christian Sweezy's book, we kind of, uh, you know, maybe upset the apple cart a little bit by jumping into the uh, you know to, mm-hmm. to what had been a very exclusive club of great teams. Right. Huh. That's great. So following on that a little bit, you not only became a person who grew the game in Central Virginia, but then took on a national role in growing the game at the high school level. So can you talk about your involvement in in NILA and how you eventually became VP and then president of that organization? And, and how did the high school game change? And what did you see happening during that period of leadership that you had in the organization? Well, I give a lot of that leadership back to the people that encouraged me to be part of it. People like Tom Hall, John Lenahan, uh, Tom Flatley. You know, those were the pioneers that really made the NILA relevant as an organization. Because, you know, when you went to the convention, it was probably not, you know, it was a lot of high school coaches. And that was when most of your recruiting went on, you know, for, for high school players. You sat at the bar, you know, got a coach to, you know, sit down and talk about a player or so forth. But there, there was no, obviously, internet or any of those kind of communication things. So it was really a, a process. And those are the men that encouraged me. You know, I went up there. My brother was coaching too. I just went up there because everybody said, hey, it's a lot of fun. You drink a lot of beer and, you know, and a lot of people. And right. that was the convention. I mean, it really was, you know. But, you know, they, you know, because I was from a growth area, they said, you know, hey, we'd love to get somebody from an area that's emerging, somebody who's, you know, connected to what I would call a non-traditional part of lacrosse. And, you know, I just... From them giving so much guidance and encouragement, just worked my way through the movement into the, being the president. And uh, it was a great experience, it was a great honor. And part of that presidency is probably the reason why I got the chance to coach Jay. <laughs> All right. And what were your, what were some of the things, you know, we were, again, you know, Jay was doing some research. It was interesting for us to learn that high school lacrosse is sanctioned in 22 states but played, according to U.S. Lacrosse, in pretty much every state. What did you see when you were president in terms of the growth of the high school game? And what's next from your perspective as you think about the ongoing growth of the game at the youth and high school level? To hear the answer to that intriguing question, please tune in next week as we continue with our series with the two-time Division I National Championship winner from UVA, and high school lacrosse coach, Hall of Famer, Doug Tarring. Until we meet again, here's to hoping you find the twine. We're signing off here at the Get the Lax Coop. Thanks again so much. We will see you the next time.